Hey there, it's John here from the Red Dice Stories. Just listened to your Cannon Fodder Henchman episode. Very much enjoyed it. And I thought, yep, highlighting the loyalty value is a very important thing, particularly in a dungeon. But I also quite liked the comparison you made with a unit of soldiers or troops on the battlefield, which was something I'd not considered before. Like yourself, I'm a big fan of turning over much of the sort of admin and running of henchmen to the player characters and letting them do that bit. Obviously, as a GM, I retain the right to sort of veto anything like that. Like if they say, oh, this henchman's going to go and do this, I can always call for a loyalty check or say, no, he isn't. And I tend to role play them in sort of conversational settings. But I don't see a reason not to turn everything else over to the players. Anyway, very much enjoy the episode. Keep up the good work and I'll catch you soon. <laughs> oh yeah, outsource it as much as you can. That's uh, actually ties into a conversation I was having on Discord recently about how to handle large numbers of troops. And uh, one of the things I had done is, in a lot of my chainmail experiences, I had been treating uh, individual units as individuals. So a two squads crash into each other. It's 20 on 20. Uh, there's 10 in the front rank, so to speak. So you're not rolling too many dice at any given time. But then in a game I played, uh, we treated a big old unit as just this big old unit because to avoid uh, differential problems in the line. So that is, if the guy second, there was a collapse on the northern side versus on the southern side. Is a didn't want to do the math on it, but anyway, so one of the other dudes at the table suggested that you scale it. So instead of rolling 96 dice, which I absolutely rolled 96 dice, I played orcs in Warhammer, so I'm accustomed to having my 72 bucket multiple times and trying to count successes. Uh, didn't seem out of the ordinary, but he pointed out instead of rolling 96 dice, what you could do is scale it. So uh, instead of counting the individual men in the line and rolling them together, you would count figures. So maybe scale it instead of uh, counting the two to one out of a unit of 30, 36 or whatever it was, you just divide it down. And so instead of rolling 96 dice, I was rolling six. And if it and, uh, so, on average, we would get that one, and we would kill twenty dudes. And so, it didn't sit right with me because I wanted that granularity. But I thought about it. Rolling six dice is a lot faster to count successes, and the odds aren't really that different. So, when you say one casualty in the figure scale, that's twenty casualties. So, out of those ninety-six, did I get twenty? sixes versus out of the six did I get one. So scaling is one thing. Outsourcing administration is another thing. If you can keep the burden of administration off of the ref, then you can focus on the presentation of the game. And I honestly think that that's a good habit that you're describing there because by focusing on the experience, by focusing on your NPCs, by focusing on the game, instead of micromanaging all of those numbers, you're able to do it better. So you spread out the work, like multiple process going through multiple cores. And so that, that's always a good plan. So John Allen Large, thank you for calling in and thank you for spreading the good word that is giving the player a little more autonomy there.
here. I was listening to your episode on the OSR, the Donner Party. Uh, that did not go in the direction I thought it was going to, and I'm kind of glad it didn't, considering the Donner Party. But it got me wondering, I wonder how many both OSR-style players and non-OSR-style players really are looking for that style of mass combat war game that goes along with some of the domain play that gets in that you get into the upper levels and that some people start including from the beginning. And if that's not one of the things that both the OSR and role-playing in general have kind of gotten away from. And then that got me thinking on a tangent. I wonder if the adventure party style play of D&D is one of the things that helped kick off the, the high prevalence of skirmish style war games that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years about the time D&D got really, really popular. It played a role, no question. I mean, look at Games Workshop. One of the things that Games Workshop did very early on was publish D&D content, and then they came along with uh, Warhammer and the, all, all of the franchise stuff with Warhammer, and yeah, that, that took off, and Games Workshop is uh, still bumper crop, so to speak. They're doing, they're doing very well for themselves. And regarding mass combat and skirmish combat, there's a big market for it. Like, you look at... Um, so there's been a recent video that's uh, rolling around on uh, the internets talking about mass combat and the new Dragonlance supplement for the 5th edition game introducing elements of mass combat that you can do in your 5th edition game. So I do think there's a market out there. If there wasn't, then WotC wouldn't be trying to capitalize on it. And that's how I was introduced to the game. Uh, I went to the hobby shop where we were playing Warhammer, where we were playing Mordheim. Mordheim is the Warhammer equivalent of the skirmish, because Warhammer started as a skirmish game, but then they learned that if they sold you more uh, dudes, then they would make more money. So it became a giant, giant kind of army thing. But the Mordheim, you have a lot, you have character advancement. It's a little randomized, but your heroes will get better over time, uh, based on how many they survive, how much treasure they get. And, uh, so there's this real OSR element to uh, Mordheim that it does not bear mechanical compatibility with the role-playing type game that D&D turned into, but it has the same spirit in terms of the domain tier and warband tier game. And so, yes, I think uh, there's absolutely an influence from D&D to get into and chainmail the, to kick it off that by introducing fantastic or science fiction elements to uh, historical gaming, then you now invite a, the, the fantasy and uh, science fiction enthusiasts. So before we had fantasy role, or fantasy wargaming, we had historical wargaming. You have Napoleonic wargaming, medieval wargaming, and there's a lot of history buffs get into that. And so uh, you can see this in more modern vintage with the Flames of War line, where I had friends who got really into Flames of War, and they built their own unit. Got military veterans found the uh, unit that mm -hmm. corresponded to the unit they served in, and they built it. And so they knew the people that they were painting. And then, uh, so you have this historical fascination in a lot of those games and in, in the historic in the historical versions you have this fascination with verisimil or not verisimilitude um you have this fascination with being true to life and that can be off-putting uh, when you're trying to be creative because it's hard to say uh you can you can invent your own units but you have to 
you're playing within the lines, so to speak. And it's by opening up the fantasy world, by opening up those kind of avenues of opportunity, you can spread more stuff. Like there's like there are organ guns in Warhammer Fantasy that didn't exist in real life. And that so because you're able to create more fantastic minis to paint, more interesting combinations to field on the tables. So yeah, absolutely. The the introdu- the divorce of historical gaming from history definitely opened up the marketplace. And you were I think I don't know if it was just a nineties thing or uh, but there was a lot of focus on individual character development and storytelling and uh, that's that's been one of the big things that people complain about in new school gaming to the present day is that you have this focus on the characters instead of the party and instead of the campaign. And so as we rediscover the roots of the hobby, uh, the domain tier gaming was part of it. Uh, you have the necessity to purchase a wagon train and retainers in a stronghold to store the treasure that you had to acquire in order to level up and it's uh it very rapidly becomes a <clears throat> excuse me that it yeah it it turns it's it's written is the old school editions are written in such a way that it almost funnels you into creating a warband, creating a domain, creating a stronghold, all that all that in-game stuff. And uh, that's something that's missing from a lot of the new school games that a lot, be, because products are coming out that cater to it, a lot of people who enjoy that, a lot of people who are drawn to that are, are coming into the hobby, either out of having played more character-driven games or from outside the hobby entirely and coming into it because it's, hey, war games. So people coming into fifth edition the same way that I came into second or third. <laughs> but anyway, the fun fun call. Good to hear your voice, sir. Thank you for calling in. Hey Taylor, Jason here. So I have joined a game, picking up a henchman. I've also been a player in a game where my PC died and then took over a henchman, and then the henchman died and took over another henchman. <laughs> um, I am reminded of running a DCC funnel uh, to start off a campaign. One of my more impetuous players burned through so many of his individuals that he borrowed one. (laughs) He had to borrow one from one of the other players. We started with four dudes apiece. He killed five. And so he managed to die five times. This game where Spencer, or free throw over, keep off the borderlands, shot my thief with one hit point in the back. Not intentionally, but he rolled a one and ended up shooting me in the back. And then I took over Henchman. And that, like I say, Henchman died, and I took over another one. And that that one survived. But I, I think the key to Henchman and Hirelings is the GM plays them. You don't give them to players and let players do what they want with them. You know, the players can say, I want you to do this or this, but the GM ultimately should be controlling those characters. Now, in combat... If it's easier for the GM to let the players control them and roll them during combat, that's fine. But you need to do what you said and take the morale in effect, and the GM can always always override. If the player has them do something stupid, the GM can always say, no, they're not going to do that. But out of combat, the GM or DM should 100% be controlling those henchmen and hirelings. The players shouldn't be use them as puppets. As long as you're doing that, I don't think there's going to be a big problem here. Give them personalities, distinct personalities, and role-play them. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? This isn't about 
just fantasy adventuring and moving board, board game pieces. This is about talking to funny voices. Knight to C9. Okay, now move up the Cavalier to flank. Okay, maybe I went a little bit too far, but you know what I'm talking about. The biggest key there, I think, is ease of referee. If a particular course of action would make the game flow more smoothly because you offload some of the processing that the ref has to do, that's generally something worth thinking about. Now, yeah, absolutely, you got to keep morale in mind, you got to keep loyalty in mind, and you got to remember that the NPCs aren't just cardboard cutouts, they're living, breathing, fake people that have their own uh, fake goals, imaginary desires, and fears, etc. And so you got to take all that into account and uh, consider some of the rules that were put in place and to, to take them into account. But by by letting the players largely control them, it's similar to how a caller works. Uh, so effectively, the player controlling the hirelings becomes the caller for those hirelings in the same way that a caller for the party would be a caller for the player group. You know, the, you know, the, the regular role that a caller actually does. So it's uh, at the end of the day, for me, I tend to like to let them largely tell me what the hireling is doing. They hired them after all, uh, and the hirelings, um, they're, they're paying them. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, and the, the bigger secret reason is because my uh, I'm running a single core, so I don't know if, uh, <laughs> if I can offload some of that onto a parallel processor. Uh, it uh, spares some of my uh, ability. It lets me try to focus more at, uh, on keeping the game moving and keeping the scene interesting. So thanks. Thanks for calling in. Uh, fun, fun observation, fun thing to think about. Hey, Taylor. Daniel from Edits. Keep calling in uh, about the hirelings. Yeah, I think you, you really nailed it there. Of course, maybe it's because we both uh, are looking at Chainmail quite a bit. Yeah, you've got to treat the, the hirelings correct, uh, use them correctly, I guess is the way I would say it, and treat them well, and then they will be more loyal. I mean, it's as simple as that. And yeah, they, right now in my OD&D campaign, they have, uh, well, they finally hired two more like fighter types. For a while, they wouldn't because, you know, the way I run the rules is that uh, the all the characters are considered heroes, so they go down last in any combat. So when you get into a combat, <laughs> the player characters uh, you know, they lost a lot of henchmen in the beginning. Let me just say that. <laughs> and they, they felt bad about it. They were like, oh man, our henchmen keep dying. I have a similar situation. My players are often hesitant to bring henchmen and hirelings in. Not for the same reason, though. They have no qualms about them dying left and right. Uh, but they don't like that I ask them to pay in shares. <laughs> but that's another story. But I allow them to hire, like, pack bearers and stuff that they that just stay back so they've got a bunch of those and that's mostly what they have now but they've rescued people i've had uh straight up you know meet them in a tavern kind of put a sign up i use those rules you know to see who they who they find with the loyalty like you said but then they've also encountered people just through role play where they've rescued people or those kind of things who have joined the group and they even for a while had a couple of uh of uh werebores that joined the party they they were uh yeah, they treated them well and they welcomed for adventure. And one of them finally died in a combat. So I decided because they were a mated pair that the other one would uh, 
would no longer want to adventure. They just took their share and left. But uh, that it's been pretty fun, and I, and I definitely think you're one hundred percent right. While I let the characters or the players give a little bit of control over them, they're, they're like the bosses or the generals or whatever you want to say. In the end, you gotta treat the hirelings like they're real people. And it will make a more fun play session because the players will start to think of them that like that, and not just as beat shields. I've never really liked that term, to be honest with you. Neither have I the term meat shield, but but you already knew that because uh, I did the episode on it. <laughs> That's neat hearing about the lycanthropes joining the group temporarily. Um, I've had parties run into other... Oh, I hear. I'm watching the other child for this recording. Mem mem. Yeah, random encounter. But yeah, having those relationships form with NPCs or even monsters, that's one of the very cool things about uh, reaction roles. That's one of the very cool things about using alignment languages. It's this big facet of the game that you get in old school gaming versus the more newer school, 3E onward, where your primary XP source is from combats, which of course motivates you to fight. So anyway, there's a thought. You, you heard me, listeners. If you enjoy mixed parties or more than just combats in your dungeons, there you go. Play old school. Thank you so much for calling in. Hey there, it's John here from the Red Dice Stories. Just listening to your Forget the Game Balance article for OSR October. Very much enjoying it. I think you make some good points. And as you say, when you're talking about the wildernesses as the wildernesses, which I agree with, it's not like the player party, if they've got any common sense, can't ask around the locals or use other methods of trying to find out a bit about the wilderness before they go there to decide, like, oh, is this place a bit too hot to handle? Like, if you go to the local tavern and they're like, Oh, there's an ancient swamp witch and a dragon who lurks in the, the, the swamps and the fens beyond this village. And you're like really low level. You might think, yeah, maybe we'll leave that to a higher level. But that doesn't mean those things shouldn't be there just because you're low level. I absolutely agree. Anyway, I'm going to go back to listening to the rest of the episode. Keep up the good work and I'll catch you soon. And that then gives you the opportunity to use my rule of thirds post. <laughs> that is some of the stuff that the locals believe will be true, some of it will be partially true, and some of it may be rumor. More seriously though, that's an absolutely quintessential element of player skill, is figuring out who to talk to, who to believe, and who to hire. So while there will be elements of perma-wilderness, there will be places that a, a party may go where no man has trod, uh, at least in this generation, but especially at the lower levels, that's all part of prep. Figuring it out, uh, getting the information that you can get prior to committing resources towards that exploration. So great observation and something I don't know if I touched on in the episode. Uh, probably didn't. Those, those October episodes are a little shorter than usual, but great point and possibly an idea worth its own episode. Who, who knows? But thank you for calling, John. Hey, Taylor. Yep, game balance. You have to be smart enough to run away when it's time to run away. So I have run away. This was in a game of the Black Hack, which, honestly, if I was going to introduce new players to 
to a dungeon kind of game, ICRPG or the Black Hack would probably be the way I go instead of any of the OSR games. But although people would say could say Black Hack is OSR in spirit, you know you can play it OSR. We definitely played it if you go with the OSR mindset. But if you go by OSR's game systems, it doesn't count. Anyway, this is a game of the Black Hack, and we were third or fourth level, but we came up against a Were Shark. And it was, or we, no, we weren't that high level. We were like second level. And it was like fourth level. So we had negatives to all of our attacks and all the stuff against it. And it was just kicking our butt. And so we were, you know, we're like, screw this. We got to get out of here. And the water's rising. And, you know, the caves are filling up with water and all this stuff. And Joe Richter was in that game. And he was playing a paladin. And he, he's, so I'm going to sacrifice myself. You guys go. And so my thief ran. Um, actually, I ended up. Because the rest of the party didn't want to abandon him. So they all kind of were hanging out there waiting, trying to help. And I'm like, you know what? It doesn't make any sense. My thief has the goal. We, came, we went in there to get a certain treasure, and we got it. So my thief has this treasure in his backpack. We're being attacked by this super powerful creature. The caves are filling with water. Would he really stay? I, I actually did a die roll to see. Um, I'll, I'll, in my heart, I didn't feel he would stay. But I figured, you know, that's kind of a... I don't want to abandon my party. But do the die roll. He, you know, determined he ran, so... Which made sense for the character, so he he ran, um, and yeah, they, Joe ended up getting bit by the were shark. They ended up finally defeating the were shark. You know, the dice were with him that day, but you know, it was kind of a an embarrassment for my character from then on. He kind of sulked out of the game after that, and we had this plan. He was going to re-enter the game, and then life got in the way, and I didn't get to play for a while. So I ended up when I came back in the game, I played a different character. But so yes, I have run away in a game that's the least OSR in spirit, the Black Hack, that's arguably an easier game, a better introduction game than any of the TSR game, TSR clones. It's what your character would do, right? <laughs> uh, but more seriously, uh, that reminds me of a player uh, that I had for a long, long time. Uh, the ta- Talking about disappearing and changing characters. So the... Um, a friend of mine made a character that was secretly evil, and so he had this kind of a plan to betray the party at some point, and he was going to do this, that, and the other, and then his character, it just didn't fit well with the party, so what we ended up doing was we created this secondary, I say we, I did this, I was the ref, but we created a secondary kind of character for him that more of an archer because I knew he enjoyed uh, sniper type characters so we created a ranged combatant with uh, like special uh, ranged abilities and he liked that and so he ended up dumping the old evil character after having separated from the party planning revenge and I was going to bring it back as an antagonist blah 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 then I never did but that's okay because he played this archer character and he had a blast playing the archer character with a secondary dude uh, fast forward, he ended up going out of country for a while, for a couple months, and so his character, <laughs> his character got carried away by um, not demons, but like the, yeah, his character got bit, cra- grabbed by subterranean spider creatures, and because we didn't know how long he was going to be gone, and so the plan was they would uncover some hints as to how to get his character back. Uh, and have an adventure out of it, but then he didn't come back, and then we just kind of forgot about it. And then, like, months later, he came back, and so we spun up a third character for him, 
and he, he just rolled in he rolled in that way so that player despite having suffered zero pc fatalities went through three separate characters over the course of the campaign so <laughs> and i uh, that was so fun fun little anecdote and um little inspiration there from you so in terms of disappearing with the treasure if it was like a quest so you were actively trying to rescue a MacGuffin, while i could see that there was a uh while i could see it that it might have been awkward having defeated the were shark uh and the party's like where 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 were you bro yeah well the, at the same time the MacGuffin got out didn't it but or if it was we're here for the gold then uh, I'd be kind of surprised if the thief didn't just hightail it. <laughs> Peace to have the DM bring him up as an NPC later. Or get kidnapped by, you know, underground spider demon creatures. So, whichever works. Whichever works for the table. As far as balanced encounters, I tend to agree with you. I mean, that's why you have levels of the dungeon in the old game, right? Because the deeper you get, the more dangerous it gets. And how much treasure to expect. That doesn't mean there's not a second or third level monster that snuck onto the first level of the dungeon, right? But you generally know roughly about how dangerous it is depending what level of the dungeon you're in, which is a balancing mechanism. I mean, like you say, there are balancing mechanisms in the you, you go to BX. It talks about balanced encounters a little bit in there, but nothing to where you're doing math to balance encounters. Perfectly balanced encounters or trying to make a perfectly balanced encounter is an exercise in futility, and it, it cheapens the world. The world should be dangerous. There should be things you have to run away from. No question about it. Um, so I, I think we're, you and I are about on the same sheet of music as far as balanced encounters go. Also, it doubles back to prep being the enemy of play. If you're doing calculus to come up with encounters and trying to figure out rest points and making sure that the party has a fair shot, that is a boatload of work. I mean... Good night. My initial experiences trying to design dungeons in college were expected to conform to third edition's CREL uh, rating, and that was some weird math. Um, it, it, the point, the point being, it's so much easier just to roll it and go, and just expect the players to figure it out. And the numbers make sense because you look at 300 bandits in the wilderness. That makes sense. People would congregate like that in order to survive in the wilderness as a level zero bandit. You have to have 300 of you. And how else are you going to spend your ill-gotten gains? You got a fence somewhere. You got to feed somewhere. And so it makes sense. The numbers work out. And again, you can build out. Uh, and I think the in another call that you had, Jason. I'm not sure whether this segment will come before or after. But you mentioned the uh, Gygax expecting you to have three levels of dungeon ready to go before you have a player touch it. That's a lot easier to do if you're not doing a boatload of math. And honestly, having perfectly balanced encounters and rest zones, well, I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit there. Having the perfectly balanced encounters prevents you from being able to do deep dungeons because you can only have so many encounters before you have to rest. So you either have to go back to town and either assume that the cleared zones stay clear, which is breaking my verisimilitude, why would I just leave my front door unlocked when my guards are dead next to it, but you could also put in safe zones in the middle of the dungeon. 
Now, why would you do that? That's silly. That's a video game save point. That that's not. Uh, if I want to play a video game, I'll play a video game. I don't want I, that. I don't. This doesn't jive for me. Now, if the party brings in their little uh, cadre and makes themselves a save point, so I have a wagon train at the base of the at the entry to the dungeon, and then I have. Uh, stopping points that I have guys maintaining between and we're keeping the peace, that's different. That's setting up your own lair. You almost become the uh, three to three hundred bandits, yeah, w- with the exception that you're of uh, adventurer alignment. But anyway, the moral of the story and where I was going with this ramble is that not only does it break the verisimilitude, but it also makes it take significantly longer to create adventures, resulting in shorter less fulfilling adventures, and who knows, maybe that's part of the reason why the modern campaign doesn't last more than six sessions. up another episode of the Cleric's Way at Ringmail podcast, an independently operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the You Can Totally Steal This license. As always, sound effects are from Mixkit.co, used under the Mixkit royalty-free license. Segments recorded in a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device. And Cleric's Way Ringmail assumes no liability in the consumption or distribution of the podcast. By listening, all parties agree. Any parties with questions can reach out on the Clerics Wear Ringmail blog. Parties who are dissatisfied can go suck an egg. Thank you for listening, everybody, and delve on.